Well, this morning we complete chapter 16 in the book of Exodus, and we are going to sort of begin at the end. Uh, We have a general summary just in the structure of chapter 16. When we begin in verse 31 to the end, we we have sort of a general summary. First, a, a basic description of what the manna looked like and tasted like, and then also God's instructions for the Israelites according to their generations of how they were to preserve manna. And therefore, generationally, they would have this living testimony, as it were, uh, kept in the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, put before God in His dwelling place, in the tabernacle and then the temple. And so we'll, we'll begin there, and then we'll move more to the core, the focus of the sermon, uh, beginning in verses 16 through 30. So let's begin in verse 31. And the house of Israel called its name Manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Actually sounds pretty good. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it, to be kept for your generations. Remember, an omer is the daily allotment, uh, at least for the first five days. The daily allotment would have been an omer. To be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness, when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years. Until they came to an inhabited land, they ate manna, until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Very vital statistic there at the end. So we have this description of manna. It's like coriander seed, uh, roughly three to five millimeters from what I looked up of coriander seeds. I wonder if some of you in your spice rack or your drawer have coriander seed all ground up. It would have been like airsoft BBs, nice bright and white covering the field like snow. Uh, Also, Numbers 11 verse 7 describes it as having an appearance of bdellium which is significant when we talk about the, the priestly vestments that the high priest wore, and that appears again later on in Revelation, but we'll save that for another time. But bdellium was this translucent, yellowish gum resin, a uh, sort of sap, and apparently the manna had this characteristic as well. So something translucent, bright, white, it looked like frost, like snow covering the ground, and every morning the Israelites would go forth and gather it up, and they could gather the equivalent of an omer, enough for the household, each according to their need. And we have that measure stated. We have the omer, and then we have this ratio given. An omer is one-tenth of an ephah. We don't know exactly how much an ephah contained. Uh, There's good reason to think, and the standard answer was it's five gallons, five of our gallons. Some scholars debate. I have no interest in spending too much time in this debate, but some would double that and say it was more likely 10 gallons. I think it's safe to go with the the majority here, five gallons. Um, On that basis, we have about a quart. So uh, an omer is taken to be about a quart. If it's 10 gallons, then two quarts. Manna was to be preserved. However, anything that wasn't consumed within the day, the next day, as we'll read, began to breed worms and it would smell, would have this stench about it, and would not be something anyone would want to eat. However, apparently in a miraculous way, that which Aaron took up and put in the testimony would have been preserved because all of the generations of the Israelites were to behold it. Now in 2 Kings we read that the manna 
is not present. So I don't know how that got misplaced. It seems like a lot of things get misplaced or easily forgotten in the temple of God. But nevertheless, you have this instruction here. The manna was to be taken, one omer, a daily ration, and this was to be a visible testimony for the future Israelites, that they could look back and see in the wilderness of their ancestors, in the wandering of their fathers, God had faithfully provided bread from heaven. Now, importantly, we have that emphasis on later generations. And in fact, this whole summary reads as something that was written at the very end of the Pentateuch. We have a summary that could not have been known at this juncture, that they ate manna for 40 years until they came to the border of Canaan. They did not know at this point in the unfolding history that they had another 40 years to go to make it into the land of Canaan. So we have a sort of summary of this larger contours of how God instructed his people concerning manna. I think it's significant that God instructed his people to preserve a ration to be held forth. Apparently, priests would have, on occasion, taken this out of the Ark of the Covenant and shown it. And that's what the Lord commands, right? As a testimony. This is something that they are to see, right? Um, Take a pot, put an omer of manna in it, lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. That's the concern. And what does he want them to do? That they may see the bread with which I fed you. So our faith is not some abstract philosophy of life. It's something deeply rooted in history. Our faith is a historical faith. And if it's not historical, then we're fools and we're wasting our time to be here on a rainy Sunday morning together. Our faith is rooted in history, and God wanted to ensure that the manna that was fed in the wilderness wasn't viewed as an allegory or a fable or just something that moms and dads told their little children. This was something they could go and see. This is what it was like. This is what they ate. This was what was gathered by Aaron, the high priest. This is what was put in the Ark of our Covenant. Now we go to verse 16, and are going to change directions a little bit and focus more on the manna and then this command regarding the Sabbath. So let's begin in verse 16. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered, some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning. Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses. Get ready to continually encounter this refrain. They did not heed Moses. Some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms, and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. And so it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. We'll pause there. You notice this opening command, let every man gather it according to each one's need. It sounds vaguely like Mark's, at least toward the end, from each according to his ability to each according to his need never quite worked out for the Marxist revolutions. That's what happens when you deny the depravity of man. It ends up not being according to one's ability and certainly not according to one's need. But here you notice we're far from Marxism. In God's economy, it's each gathering for themselves and their own. So each must gather. 
and yet it is according to need. In other words, there's no place for hoarding here. Each one gathers according to their need, as an old southern preacher said, not according to his greed. God provides according to needs, not according to greed. So here the men are the gatherers in that whole hunter-gatherer debate. Here the men are the gatherers. They're going out into the fields to gather up the manna. Paul takes this and quotes this in 2 Corinthians 8 when he speaks about giving in general. It's one of the ways that we understand how Paul understood to apply the Old Testament to the life of the church. And here he takes this principle of the manner of giving, the manner of providing, and he applies it to the church at Corinth in terms of this collection for the relief of the poor in Judea. And he says this, 2 Corinthians 8, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, This is something that's going out to all of the churches, and he's completely refreshed by the Corinthians' desire, and he's putting before them the example of the Macedonian believers who have excelled above all. He says, I don't mean that others should be eased and you be burdened, but by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, he who gathered little had no lack. You see, Paul is taking this instance of Exodus 16, quoting it in terms of how the church should consider giving to those in need. Giving in a liberal, free way as God's good provision, and you simply meet the need. There doesn't need to be something excessive, and there shouldn't be any lack. There's this freedom because it's God who has provided. As God freely and richly provides for His people, so His people can freely and richly provide for others in need. And yet each one, it's incumbent upon themselves, each one must gather for themselves and their own. That's the principle. comes up again in the pastoral epistles. The Lord ensures that there's no place for hoarding, not just by instruction, but by transformation. Something happens overnight to that bread that would turn your stomach. I found when I was in Texas, I, I took home some, some treats for the girls. So I went to this little candy store and they had uh, Jelly Belly Bean Boozled. Has anyone heard of this? So Jelly Belly makes this little game you can buy. It's a box of jelly beans, and, and there's, there's two in there, one of their normal, very good flavor, and one that looks exactly alike, and it's a disgusting flavor. The mild, the mild one would be like toothpaste, but then you get dirty dishwater, rotten eggs, stink bug. I mean, it gets pretty bad. So I, I took this to my parents' house. We're all sitting around on Thanksgiving, and after, or in between dessert, we're all doling out jelly beans, you know, and seeing uh, who, who got what. Of course, my first spin, I got rotten egg, and that pretty much put a damper on the rest of the evening for me. So I, I couldn't help but taste that in the back of my mind when I, thank, when I thought about, you know, someone waking up in the morning, not really having their eyes open, you know, pulling out the pot of coffee, grabbing some of that manna, and they put it in their mouth, and as they begin to chew, Things aren't looking so well. I mean, what a revolting picture is that? The Lord ensures that there'll be no hoarding. The Lord ensures that you won't be out in the middle of the night gathering more than anyone else. There won't be a run at the supermarket when it comes to this manna. This will just be a daily bread, a daily allotment. What a revolting picture. I remember I used to get uh, one of my good friends, we've been praying for him, Don. He used to faithfully uh, every morning, go and get me a cup of coffee. It was part of his morning routine, and so he just made it uh, a blessing for me. And so every morning I'd get, uh, this is like you know, probably why I'm going to lose my feet in 10 years, but every morning I'd get two donuts and a coffee. 
And so it's just the highlight of my morning. That morning break came, there was nothing like it. But there was this bin off to the side in the back of the warehouse and would throw discarded scraps. And every now and then, I was too busy to finish that last jelly donut. So everything got kind of stuffed in that bin. And I remember one day, we went over to empty out that bin and there was all manner of maggots. And it was, I couldn't eat donuts for like a month after that. Whenever I saw it, I don't know how these Israelites put up with seeing the worms and, and the stench, but somehow, they understood, we have to consume everything, and the next day the Lord will provide. And I see this as a larger principle in, in the way God providentially provides for us. He's faithful to put worms into those things that would cause us not to trust Him, not to lean on Him, or would otherwise lead us astray. It's what we saw in Haggai 2 a few weeks ago. Right? You sought after much, but it came to nothing. Why? Because I blew it away. Because my house lies in disrepair. So God's faithful to frustrate, to collapse, to put worms, to make something obnoxious, to give something a stench when it's not toward Him, for Him, from Him, by Him, when it doesn't have an eye to His priorities for your life, what He calls to be a blessing, when it's the kind of pursuit that would lead you away from Him, away from the faith, away from the things that He says are worth your effort, worth your energy, worth your concern. And some of us have had to learn the hard lesson of finding worms in the bread you know, because our, our flesh was involved. We were hoarding, we were seeking, we were ambitious. We weren't wise, we weren't thoughtful, we weren't putting the kingdom and the righteousness first and trusting that all the other things would be provided. And God puts worms in all those things that otherwise would be food, would be bread to us. And so I take that as a principle. As J.R. Miller says, we cannot get grace today for tomorrow's duty. And if we try to bear tomorrow's burdens today, we'll break down in the attempt. God loves daily provision. He says, don't ask for me to provide tomorrow. Just trust that I will provide for tomorrow and ask me to provide for you today. Don't pray for tomorrow's bread. Pray for the bread today. He's all about grace in the moment, mercy renewed in the morning. Don't wait for mercy in the next season. Today is the day of salvation. God loves moving, not in necessarily a spon spon spontaneous way, but in a way of urgent inculcation. He loves growing His people's trust and dependence upon Him hour by hour, moment by moment. And that's what we see Him doing with the Israelites here. He's fitting them for an inheritance. Verse 23, another step forward in how God will fit and prepare His people. Then He said to them, This is what the Lord has said, Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Uh, clearly we have something of the Sabbath contained in Genesis 2, 7 and 13. However, formally speaking, this is the first description, the first mention of what we understand to be Sabbath proper in the Pentateuch. This is the first time as we've begun reading Scripture that we come across something identifiably recognizable as the Holy Sabbath unto the Lord. Clearly we have it contained within Genesis 2. This gives us a lens to look back toward that. There's debate over whether uh, the forebears kept this. I think there's good reason to think that they did. But here we have the formal instruction given to the Israelites who as slaves most certainly did not keep the Sabbath. How could they have kept the Sabbath under the demand of the taskmasters, under the direction of the serpentine ruler, Pharaoh? So this is what the Lord says. 
Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until the morning. So they laid it up till morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. So miraculously, just as God could preserve that jarred omer in the Ark of the Covenant for the future generations of his people, he can also preserve it for the night. You see, God's providential control in a way that blesses rather than hinders his people's faith in him. He can preserve, by the way, brothers and sisters, he can preserve your pursuits, your endeavors, your labors, your toils, your cares. He can make sure there's no worms in it if you have the right priority, if it will be a genuine blessing to you and not something that will cause you to stumble. Our God is able to preserve it unto you. And here, the Israelites experience that. It's not something to do with the manna itself, but rather God's providential and sovereign control over the manna. He can preserve it an extra night in order to give his people a rest. Moses said, eat that today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Not only is it preserved in the household during the night, but it's also not spread on the Sabbath day. As they go out, there's nothing to gather. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Uh, first thing to notice about this is the Sabbath as the fourth commandment has not yet been given, but here we have the instruction of observing the Sabbath. And so if, if there's an argument that somehow it's a ceremonial commandment, uh, we'd have to wrestle with why it appears here. Why does God already begin to set this before his people? We're going to have a lot more to say on this than we'll say today when we get to the fourth commandment. A lot more to say about how to understand the nature of the ceremonial aspects um, of the Sabbath and Sabbath keeping for the Israelites and what it means for us to have a rest that remains. So I've, I've spoken of this in the past in Mark 2 and Genesis 2. I'm not going to spend too much time laying out the big picture of the Sabbath or the building blocks of the Sabbath. Maybe we'll rehearse that when we get to Exodus 20. Here I want to move on a little bit, but again, there's much to say about this appearing even prior to the Sinai Covenant, though at Sinai it becomes a sign of the Sinai Covenant according to Exodus 31. In attempting to save themselves from the toil which God commanded, the Israelites kept the manna in defiance. That's something that we saw, that they kept the manna, and it was this willful defiance against God's provision. And yet, when God instructed them to keep it, and they kept it, it preserved them and gave them a day of rest without the need to gather, and their stomachs were full at the end of the Sabbath day. And that, to me, is this picture of our unbelief. Right? Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's goodwill to provide for you. But there's a willfulness in our unbelief, this frenzy that makes us hoard uh, to, to gather up, to go out into the field even when there's nothing to gather and to run our hands through thorns and thistles and try to provide something for ourselves, whether that's a, a covering or a provision or a direction or some motivation, we go forth and we're refusing God's command to rest. I provide the bread, he's saying. When I tell you to gather and keep, you gather and keep. When I tell you to stay in and rest, you stay in and rest. I will meet your needs. But there's a willfulness on a part of the people of God. When they're commanded to rest, they want to labor. And when they're commanded to labor, they want to rest. This is a problem with the people of God. 
We're passive and lazy in the things that we should be active and zealous about. And we're active and zealous in all the ways that we should be careful, thoughtful, and resting. This is an example of living by sight rather than living by faith. An example of going out with a dependence upon their arm rather than on the hand of God. A dependence upon themselves, their their efforts, their labors, rather than a dependence upon God. And why is God doing this? Is this the only way to feed the Israelites? He chose to feed them in this way so that He could continually teach them not only His ability to provide, but His desire to provide. I have a care for you, He says. Cast your burdens on me. I know that you're hungry. I know that you're weary. I know that you're tired. Let me give you rest and let me give you food. It's not just that I can, it's that I want to. It's not just that I'm able, it's that I will, I promise to. And so God is teaching this lesson to His people, calling them to be not anxious or distrustful, but to be faithful and dependent upon Him. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And if you're, I'm sure like many of us, you're thinking, give us this week or this bi-weekly budget You know, give us our groceries for the week. And we tend to forget the daily provision, the constant compassion of our God. There's a reason Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day. The same thing James warns against. Don't have this this sense that everything's going to work out. We're going to go to such and such a city at such and such a time, and this is how everything's going to go. Don't be presumptuous. Give us this day our daily bread. Tomorrow we'll... We'll do that prayer. We'll do the George Mueller prayer tomorrow. Give us today our daily bread. And if our cupboards are full and our refrigerators are full and our basement freezers haven't, you know, shorted or been left open, then we ought to be very thankful for God's provision each day. Verse 27. Here we see this willful disobedience. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. Big surprise. What did they expect? (laughs) Moses had said from the Lord's own revelation, when you go out on that seventh day, there'll be nothing to gather. But they go out on the seventh day, and lo and behold, there's nothing to gather. Why is it that we test the Lord God? We don't believe Him at His word. The Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Please notice the emphasis there. He doesn't say, the Lord has required of you this Sabbath. The Lord has given you this Sabbath. Do you remember the toil that caused you to cry out at the beginning of Exodus? Do you remember the whiplashes on your back and the restlessness that took all your strength and vitality? Do you remember the the tragedy of lamenting that your children and your children's children would be enslaved their whole lives? because of what was exacted upon you by your taskmasters, that endless labor. But lo, I give you rest, he says. I'm giving you a Sabbath. Not only will I not whip your back, not only will I not uh, in a cruel way force you to produce, I'll give you bread. Open the door flap of your tent and scoop up what you need for the day. And on top of that, I give you rest. Look at this gracious provision. See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. And therefore He gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. 
Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. And finally, one of these rare gems in the midst of these chapters, the people actually obey. So the people rested on the seventh day. It's music to our ears. They actually followed through, at least some of them, as we'll see. In total disregard of what Moses had said, some go out on the seventh day to gather. And again, you remember this picture. Remember verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather a certain quota every day. Why? Not only to show his ability, not only to show his care, but also, verse 4, that I may test them to see whether they'll walk in my law or not. So not only do we see God's sovereign provision, not only do we see God's fatherly care, but also we see a God who wants to test the faith of His people. He wants to prove the work of grace that redemption has wrought. A certain quota is allotted every day. He's showing that He can make it rain from the heavens. And why? So that He can test them to see whether they'll walk according to His law. So here we see that even the gracious provision of God is meant to be something that tests and proves our faith. As one said, joy tests us just as well as sorrows. It's not just through deprivation that the people of God are tested, it's through provision that the people of God are tested. Think of Daniel coming into the, the Babylonian gourmet's dream. All the delicacies and delights, something that Food Network couldn't even dream of, this endless feast spread before him, and Daniel and his compatriots recognize we're going to sell our souls if we give ourselves over to that kind of luxury. I'm not only tested when I'm deprived, I'm tested when I'm blessed, when there's this kind of luxury spread before me. I need to be mindful and guarded over my soul. It's not just the loss that will prove me, but also the gain that will prove my faith. Will I lose my sense of dependence upon God? Will I forget all His benefits? Will I fail to bless His name? Will I not have thankfulness in my heart? Do we remember always that God is the giver of blessing? We're now what, a week? A week and some days past Thanksgiving? Have we maintained that Thanksgiving spirit? It seems like Thanksgiving comes and goes in a shorter and shorter breath, a shorter span. Are we grateful for Him to what we receive? This is one of the ways that the people would have been equipped to rest on that, that glorious seventh day. They would have rested in the goodness of God. They would have looked back with thanksgiving to all that He had provided and said, we don't need to provide tomorrow. He's given us the Sabbath. Another reason to bless His name. Another reason to be thankful. Do we obey God as carefully and follow Him as closely when our tables are full as when they're empty? We all are driven to trust and depend upon God when there's a pressing need. But do we trust and depend on God when we don't have that pinch of a need? I fear that in our flesh and in our sort of manner of provision that we're not prone to depend on God in ways that we should. And for that reason, the tables being full, the manna being showered from heaven, the disobedience of the people here is almost more shameful. You can never give them a pass, but you could certainly be more sympathetic if they were starving. And they go out on the seventh day and they're just scraping through the dirt, trying to find something to put in their mouth. 
You could say, ah, even then you're disobeying the command, but I sympathize with you. You were desperate. Right? We don't give, uh, Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm starving, so I guess I'm going to make these stones bread. So, so if Jesus recognized even that desperate plight would be sinful, would be disobedient to God, then we would say it's the same for the Israelites. But we would certainly sympathize with them. Out of their great need, they were driven to disobey. The tragedy of Exodus 16 is that it's not out of need. They have that allotment, which is more than enough. They're always satisfied. There's, there's never anything left over, and there's never, oh, I wish I just had a little bit more. They're always perfectly content. And yet, though their table is full, though they're perfectly satisfied with what God has provided, they willfully disobey Him. Not out of need, not out of hunger, not out of the pinch of desperation, but just out of willful disobedience, a willful distrust of God. And it's shameful. There's an indifference to God's command that we see here developing in some of the Israelites. An indifference. We'll decide what's best for us. We'll do what we see as necessary. We won't, as Jesus fulfilled, we won't know how to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We'll live by bread alone, the bread that we'll seek to gather in our own way. Of course, this wasn't done by all. Apparently, there was only a few that did this, but it was enough to warrant God's rebuke. And that is also something that, as a people, as a church, we need to take into account. There doesn't have to be some 90% majority for God's rebuke or God's chastisement to fall. We're all interwoven as stones being chiseled into this glorious temple, this abode of the Spirit. And because we're all this royal priesthood, even if some of us are giving ourselves over to murmuring or groaning, if some of us are indifferent to God's commands, if some of us are thoughtless about what God has required, we can expect that the rebuke may come to all. Notice that God rebukes Moses, and it's a rebuke that's given to all of Israel, even though only some of the Israelites went forth. And the idea here is, at least some of the Israelites were going, what is he doing? Why is he out in the field? Doesn't he not know what Moses said? There wasn't a watchfulness, there wasn't a guardedness. And the Christian church, John Urquhart says, which does not mourn the sin in its midst, has no living trust in God. Again, they're living by sight. They're not living by faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Because he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Manna is given every day, Even to these faithless, disobedient rebels, manna is there. God rebukes them and yet provides for them. How many times have we seen that lesson in our own lives? God rebukes us and yet He still provides for us. But woe to us if from those very examples we don't learn how to live by faith and not by sight. Learn how to diligently seek Him because He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Well, the biggest command here is more a gift than a command, right? There's a command that comes with the Sabbath, but to make it like it's some harsh, unfair requirement of God is to mischaracterize what the Sabbath is. And I emphasize again, He has given you the Sabbath. He has not burdened you with the Sabbath. He's given you the Sabbath so that you would not be burdened. And so we look at this larger picture of rest, and we look at this Sabbath command, 
And I want to, in our application now, I, I want to look at that through three different angles. In some ways they all overlap, but I, I want to try to divide them into three different angles. Three lenses at which we can look at this larger picture of rest. Not necessarily the Sabbath proper, but this larger picture of rest and how that fits together with the Sabbath. Again, there's a lot more to say when we get to Exodus 20. I, if I had a whole, whole uh, separate sermon this morning, we would just look at John's Gospel and see how John uh, employs the first day and the seventh day and that glorious eighth day, which is the new first day, the new creation. All these beautiful themes of this number six of incompletion and lack of fulfillment and the glorious fulfillment. And John is structuring in a very Sabbatarian way, his theology of Jesus' work, his, his redemption. So that, that'll, we'll get there in due time. But for now, just maybe more practically, how are we to understand rest? How are we to understand rest? Specifically, rest for the workman, right? rest for the worker, those who labor, those who toil, rest for the workman, rest for the warrior, and finally, rest for the weary. So rest for the workman, the warrior, and the weary. First, for the workman. We're in the context of Exodus, and all these once enslaved Israelites had been workmen, slaves, toilers, laborers. By doubling the manna on the sixth day, the Lord makes it possible for His people to cease gathering food on the seventh day. So not only does He provide daily bread, but He gives them an opportunity to rest from their labor. Again, this is not something they had experienced as slaves. Remember Exodus chapter 5, beginning in verse 4. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many, and you make them rest from their labor. Right? Pharaoh's saying, how dare you give these people rest from their labor? You've taken them from that enslaved toil from what they produce all that I need for my empire. How dare you release even the slightest chain of their bondage? How dare you give them even a day of rest? You take the people from their work. You make them rest from their labor. And so what does he do as a result of that? He commands his taskmaster saying, no longer shall you give the people straw to make brick. Let them go now and gather straw for themselves. So not only does he say, I don't want them to have rest, now he increases the toil, he increases the pain of the labor. No longer straw to make brick, but rather gather your own straw to make brick. The same quota as before. So this is the beginning of this contrast. The serpentine ruler, the one who loves to see the image of God in bondage, what does he do? He refuses to give the people rest. He doubles down on their enslavement. He makes their toil even more soul-crushing. It causes them to lash out against Moses. Look at the trouble you've inflicted us with. So here, there's no rest, no, no relief whatsoever. And then God, by contrast, says, I'm giving you rest from your labor. I'm giving you a day where you don't have to go forth and gather, where you can simply rest and enjoy all that I've provided. Every need has been met. You can depend on me and trust me. But often we want to work or spend ourselves out of this restless spirit which denies the gracious provision of God, right? At root is our pride. This is something that we'll see uh, next week in SLBC, not tonight, 
we'll get there next week with uh, some readings from William Gurnall, which I'm very excited about. At root, it lays into why we, we don't want to rest in God's grace. We want to work. We want to earn. We want to merit. There's this pride. There's this sense of control, the sense of, of what we can establish for ourselves. It's, it's Adam and Eve adorning themselves with leaves and thinking, this will do. That same fallen spirit, that same fallen instinct. We don't know how to rest. Augustine had the famous prayer. I'm restless until I find my rest in you. All the things that seem to offer rest just end up becoming things that make us restless. Hobbies that are ways that we relax end up being all-consuming, and we become restless. We become devoted to them, fixated upon them. They end up robbing us of all the things that we once found leisure and enjoyment in. Only rest is found from the Lord. The world, under the sway of Pharaoh, only knows how to enslave with forms of labor. And sadly, the people become trained. They become trained in a way that that is all they know. It's all they know. And God is now doing His own training. He's seeking to undo the training of centuries of slavery, of a lifetime of bondage, a lifetime of toil, and He's saying, now I will train you and teach you to rest by trusting in Me. You will now rest, enjoy the gift of rest because of who I am and what I have done. In faith and dependence upon Me, you will have rest. Insofar as you do not depend on Me or have faith in Me, all there is is restless toil, endless labor, gathering in the fields with nothing to put into your stomach. Now part of this rest, as we said, is a recognition that God is able and God cares and God is testing. All these things are at play when it comes to our Christian rest, our keeping of the Lord's day. The Lord on the Lord's day is confronting our distrustful care. He's forcibly freezing our frenzied pace of life. He's testing us to see how much of our heart begins to flood our minds and our thoughts with what I have to do tomorrow in this week, how much I have to get done, how am I going to pull that off? There's no way I can make this kind of time. There's no way I can make these kinds of priorities. And the Lord says, is it you that is providing or is it me? Is it you that are able to fill your stomach or is it me? Is it you that are able to work and earn your own rest or is it me that freely gives you rest? In other words, the Lord is confronting all those faithless aspects of our time, our resources, our pursuits when it comes to keeping the Lord's day. There's perhaps no greater means of grace in the Christian's life to reveal the hold of the flesh than sanctifying the Sabbath. There's perhaps no greater means to put the magnifying glass of your maturity and your spiritual discernment upon your practice than sanctifying the day of the Lord. So not only is he giving it to show our need for faith, our ability to trust him, his gracious provision, but it's also to test whether we're actually trusting in Him or trusting in ourselves, whether we're actually prioritizing His commands, His way, His will, or our own. Now part of this, part of sanctifying the Sabbath, part of understanding the Lord is confronting us and, and wanting to actually grow in faith, in trust, independence upon Him, is preparing for the Sabbath. 
Right? Part of partaking rightly is preparing rightly. And so, just as we see among the Israelites, there had to be forethought. There had to be a little extra effort the day before that day of rest came to gather up not one omer for each member of the household, but two omers. So it required a little more practice, a little more thought, a little more time out in the field. It was a little bit harder to get everything to fit together in the course of the day, but it was so that you could set apart this day of rest, so that you could fully enjoy all the contours of this day of rest, that you would wake up with all the excitement and delight of being able to rest and chase away all the thoughts that would intrude like dark clouds on that clear sky. We see it even in the Lord's command. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest. Bake what you will bake today. Boil what you will boil today. Lay up for yourself all that remains. Right? Today is the day of preparation, God is saying, because tomorrow is the day of rest. So there's forethought. There's planning. There's determination. There's not this sort of absent-mindedness that goes, oh, I can't believe what time it is. And then you just wake up and you sort of, you know, haggardly go about the day, and then as soon as you leave lunch fellowship, you might as well be in Monday. You're already in the mode of Monday. You haven't actually set apart this day to the Lord. And therefore, this means of grace is not really a very powerful means of grace in your life. It's not exposing the will and the way of the flesh. It's not exposing the pull of the world. It's not exposing your dependence upon yourself rather than on God. It's also not training you away from this frenzied labor, this mindset that belongs to a slave rather than a child of the king. This mindset of all will be provided. I simply must align myself to his kingdom, his righteousness. I sanctify this day that I might sanctify myself, my life. So part of rightly partaking is rightly preparing. J.R. Miller, in his sermon, some of you have, have read of J.R. Miller, perhaps his more famous um, daughter, there would seem to be in this provision and preparation in advance a suggestion of the way we would best observe our Sabbath. Some of us, now he's writing about, I don't know, a century or more ago. I think that's right. Uh, he says, some of us remember certain old-fashioned times in the country when on Saturday evening, careful preparations were made for the Sabbath. So there would be no needless work done on the day of the Lord. Wood was cut, carried in. All the implements of worldly labor were put away. Boots and shoes were cleaned and blackened. That's interesting. Coffee was ground. Hey, hey. Food cooked, as far as possible. In a word, everything was done that could be done beforehand to enjoy the most restful Sabbath possible. This old-fashioned custom is a good one to keep always. Very much of Sabbath enjoyment and profit will always depend upon the measure of preparation we make for it in advance. You see, he's saying even in his time, they had fallen away from former practices. Now, if that was a century or more ago, what would he say about our time? Some of us in this room uh, remember blue laws. Right? You wanted to go out and do everything. It's just that in the civil sphere, in the market square, there was really nothing you could do. You couldn't go shop. You couldn't go do the, the worldly employments and entertainments. The blue laws kept everything closed. And so a lot of people grew up and they had memories of the great feast day, the day that all the relatives and friends had, you had the biggest lunch imaginable or the big early dinner. It was a big feast day. And this is the, the long, luminous afterglow of what the Sabbath used to mean for Protestants. 
And now what does it mean for the typical Protestant in our land? We need to leave quick because kickoff is starting at 1. Right? And there's more excitement and anticipation. Frankly, there's more preparation. I was going to say for the Patriots, but they're so lousy right now. Who's who's watching them? They're horrible. (laughs) But there's generally more anticipation for the freedom and the amusement of the afternoon than there was for the worship of the living God in the morning. Not only was that day done with distraction and a lack of insight, interest, or thought for the the demand of the day and the focus of the day and all that that means for our own sanctification, but there wasn't any forethought of preparation. And so nothing was done beforehand to say, how can we maximize the benefit of what God has given us? He's given us rest. He's given us a day to train us and prepare us for that greater rest yet to come. Let us be very clear about this. The Sabbath is to be our blessing. It's one of the great rebukes that comes forth in Isaiah 58. Call this a day of delight. Call the Sabbath a delight. Why do you make it something obnoxious? Why do you make it burdensome? Why would you rather be out in the field scraping the mud? Why won't you rest? Why won't you delight? Why won't you see my goodness? Why do you always want to cloak yourself with fig leaves? The Sabbath is to be the most blessed day of the week, the crown of the week, the jewel of the week. Every week God gives us this day. It's a day of fellowship. It's a day of communion. It's a day of worship. It's a day of rest and reflection. It's a day of sanctification. It's a day of preparation. It's a day of anticipation. This should be the most blessed day of the week. Friday is not the most blessed day of the week. Friday night's not the best time. Saturday's not. Finally, I can do all the things I couldn't do Monday through Friday. Saturday's the best day of the week. And you betray your spiritual immaturity. The Sabbath is a blessing. God gives it to be a blessing. Woe be to us if we treat it like a burden. Lord, I don't want your gift. I want to work. Lord, I don't want your provision. I want to provide. Let us be clear We are commanded, and this will be carried over in Exodus 20, we're commanded to keep the Sabbath holy. That is the fourth commandment, is it not? Keeping the Lord's day holy is part of what it means to live a godly life. This was beyond dispute for centuries of Christian praxis. And only in in our modern times of shallow belief and complete worldliness run amok in the church do we somehow separate this as a means of grace, as a sanctifying influence, as a day made holy by God, for God, and for His people? Part of what it means to obey the fourth commandment is to keep this day holy because it's so central to how we must live and how we will live a godly life. Part of what it means to trust God is contained within the Sabbath. Part of what it means to bless God and be thankful to God and therefore worship Him rightly is contained within the Sabbath. Part of acknowledging and seeing and finding blessing in your life is bound up with the Sabbath. Part of how you will learn to trust and obey is bound up to the Sabbath. Spurgeon says, like the Israelites, sometimes we get double supply. But there's a difference between us and the children of Israel because we get a double supply on the Sabbath. <laughs> right? We don't get a double supply before, we get it on the day. Oh, how we ought to thank God for our Sabbaths. 
when the Lord is with us, when he makes the manna lie before us like dew, when we come to his house and our omers are full. Happy Sabbath. These days become the market day of the week. That's what the Puritans use as a caricature, the market day of the soul. You know, that day of the week where you go and, you know, you, you've, you're hungry, you're, you're down to the last few creative meals you can put together from the cupboard. You know, like, you know, you think raisins would go with that dish? You know, you're trying to scrape up, you know, remnants of cereal boxes and all that. You're down to bare minimum, you know, plain boiled pasta again. But the next day is market day. The next day you fill up. I remember as a boy when my, my mom would come home from that weekly trip, she'd always have a box of Drake's coffee cakes. They didn't last the night. <laughs> Those were like, we were like piranha as soon as that bag, that was gone first day. And it was almost the joy, the anticipation of market day, you know, grocery trip, all the good things in front of us that will carry us through to the end before the next market day. And that's what the Lord is doing. Here's this market day for the soul. Here's all this abundance. Eat Breathe, enjoy, delight. Let this sustain and nourish and carry you through until the next market day. And yeah, come Friday, come Saturday, you're beleaguered and you're weary and you're about to be filled and refreshed. So sanctify the Sabbath day. Prepare wisely for it. The Lord confronts our distrustful care. I ask the question, are we choosing the better part? Are we choosing the better part? In Luke 10, we have Jesus entering a certain village and a certain woman named Martha. And she has a sister, a certain woman named Mary. I can't wait to meet Martha and Mary. What an interesting relationship these siblings have. Seems like they had uh, the typical sibling intrigue throughout their life. And here Jesus comes upon the scene and hears this classic sibling rivalry and sort of a bone of contention between these two sisters. Isn't that encouraging that Jesus comes into your family dysfunction? You know, you think, you know, can you just control yourself? The master is here, you know. Control myself. Can you just be civil for once, Mary? Can you just help? So you have this picture of Jesus coming in, and now he's going to address this little spat between these sisters. And this is the, the scene that Luke sets for us. She had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That's a picture of rest, right? Sitting, reclining, and listening to the word. Listening to Jesus teach. And in contrast to that is Martha. Martha was distracted with much serving. So she's distracted. She's getting a few words. Oh, that's interesting. I'll have to double. I'll have to ask a question about that later, but... You know, this is burning, that has to get done, the table's not set, that just spilled. She's distracted by much serving. So you have a sister that seems to be lazy, passive, unproductive, not laboring, not meeting the demands of the day. There's things that we can do and we should do. That's Martha. Then you have Mary. She's not doing any of those things. She's not distracted, she's not frenzied, she's not consumed by much serving. She simply sits so that she can hear the word. She's resting at the feet of Jesus. So Martha approaches Jesus and says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? It's the same uh, groaning and complaint that the disciples said. Don't you care that we're drowning? Well, Martha is drowning in busyness. She's drowning in labor. Don't you care that I'm drowning? There's so much to do and no one's helping me. 
And what does Martha expect? What is Jesus going to say to that? What? She's not How dare you? Get up. You help your sister. Give her a break. You need to go and work and toil. Is that, is that what Jesus instructs? He actually rebukes. Martha thinks, I'm about to get vindicated. Jesus, let's go. We'll confront her together. <laughs> That's what she thinks is going to happen. She's surprised that Jesus is actually about to rebuke her. Martha, 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 Martha. You're worried and troubled about many things. <laughs> it's that great book title, one of the best book titles. I don't know if it's a good book. It's a great title. Having a Mary spirit in a Martha world. What a great title. You're troubled by many things. You have many pressures, many concerns, many things that are consuming you, many frets and fears that are troubling you. You're worried about a lot, but one thing is needed. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen the good part. Mary has chosen the one thing needed. Mary has rested and received my word. You're troubled, you're toiling, you're worried, you're distracted, but only one thing is needed, that you would rest and receive his word. And he says, not only am I not going to rebuke her, not only are you not going to get help from her, I'm not taking that away from her, but you should learn how to sit next to her. I had, thankfully, a few examples in my life, because I grew up without any real exposure to this historic practice or the implication of the fourth commandment or what this even looks like. I had no visible patterns in front of me until an elder uh, took me aside. It was one of the things that he began talking to me about. I wasn't sure I, where I was on it. I was sort of a feisty, you know, keyboard warrior at that point in time, a cage stage Calvinist. And I, w I had all sorts of responses prepared for that because I, at the time, I hadn't quite, quite clarified things. Maybe that's where you are and that's okay. You're in, you're in the right place for us to grow and work these things out. But I remember him in a very sort of gentle admonishment saying, you really need to be preparing and you need to be resting on this day. You know, what, what could you do to make that day a gift, a blessing? And I remember going over, uh, I used to do a lot of pulpit supply for Mark Marquis. And um, he only did it once. That's okay. <laughs> he invited me back to the his home, which is behind the church building, the parsonage. And he had, uh, I think it was because he had a friend there who was uh, a pastor down in the south. And so they were going to spend some time flushing me. He said, hey, if you, if you don't have to leave right away, why don't you and Alicia come? This was years ago. And so you could tell it was, it was unplanned. It was unanticipated. And it was, you know, we, we hadn't eaten anything. And we went, and God bless his wife. She wasn't going to run around. She wasn't going to bust out and start cooking and making all this the Lord's Day. So she said, yeah, I might have a bag of popcorn and maybe some peanuts. And she just grabbed what was available and she put it in because it was a day of rest. She wasn't distracted. She wasn't worried. She wasn't in a frenzy. She wasn't like, let me go clean and let me whip all these things up and can I start baking this? Can I make you that? She, you know, it's just like, here's a bottle of water. I can give you some peanuts. It was like prison rations. It was, it was glory. I remember being so struck by that. I was like, wow. Like, what a blessing. And the fellowship was almost sweeter for that reason. There wasn't any airs or, or any dries. It was just enjoying discussing things in a spiritual way. So I asked the question, even in something as simple as that, do you choose the good part? Do you choose the better part? Do you choose the thing that Jesus says, it won't be taken from you? And the implication of that is anything else will be taken from you. 
Anything else that you think is so vital, so worthwhile, so necessary, so consuming, the things that cause you worry and toil, in the end, those things are taken from you. The one thing that will never be taken from you is the one thing you need, which is to know how to rest at the feet of Jesus and listen to his word. And to help you do that, he's given you a day of rest. A day of rest. So that's rest for the workman. Uh, Secondly, and this is a little more brief, rest for the warrior. It's not only the, the laborer that had to learn how to rest, but think of where the story is going when the 40 years of wandering have passed and now Joshua is about to lead that emergent generation into Canaan. And he's leading them into Canaan as what? As warriors, as an invading force, as the armies of the Lord, as the hosts of the Almighty. And so the warriors need to go and they need to toil in the conquering of the land. They need to work hard at the combat that God has put before them. They need to extend His kingdom to overtake all that He has assured them. And only to them, in that warrior way, will that victory bring rest. In other words, there'll be no rest in that land, no enjoyment of that land, until that victory is complete. Think of any soldier going off to war. It's endless toil, endless toil, endless toil until the hard, hard-fought battles lead to the hard-won victory, and then the rest has come. It's nothing that a week of R&R or a little relocation or a little downtime in between the great fights could ever bring about. There's, there's never that sense of rest until the war is over. The victory is complete. Now we hang up our arrow and our bow. Now we put aside our spear and our shield. Now we rest. And I love this picture for the Christian life as the hymn captures it. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. Well, what if you're not faithful? What if you're not a warrior? Well, you don't even enter the land. You don't even enter the land. And we'll get there from Hebrews 4. They didn't believe. They were disqualified. They didn't enter into the rest. Only warriors end up resting. And to the warriors that are faithful in the combat, are faithful to engage in the war, war against the flesh and the world and the devil, war for the sake of the kingdom, only to those faithful warriors will the rest finally come. Now some of you, you've pressed on in the Christian life and you know exactly what I'm describing. You've, You've been in a war against certain lusts of the flesh. You've been in a war against certain things that once had power over you, and now they have this remnant presence, and you're mortifying, and you're purging, you're fighting. We call it a fight of faith for this reason. You're working these things out like a good soldier in Christ Jesus. You're putting on that Ephesians 6 armor because you're fighting, and this whole life is characterized by this combat. You might have that weekly R&R, but you won't have the rest until the victory is won. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. I know something of fatigue. I know some of you do, but I I can't imagine the fatigue that comes toward the end of one's life, toward the sunset of one's health. I remember my grandfather when he was in his late 80s, and if you, if you asked him in a way that he had time to actually talk, you know, it wasn't just sort of a passing nicety, you know, how are you, you know, how are you doing? How are you? 
he would just say with this body language and expression that I, I couldn't replicate if I tried, but it's, it's burned into my memory. He'd just say, I'm tired. Right? He doesn't mean, oh, I, I need a nap, or I didn't sleep well last night. He's just like, I'm tired. I'm tired of living. And you've met people in their 80s and their 90s, people going, you know, fighting the fight. Why do we call like, diseases like cancer a battle? We say they lost their battle to cancer, right? There's a weariness, there's a fatigue that comes. It's a profound exhaustion. And no nap, no 10, 12 hours of sleep every night could touch it. Melatonin can't touch it. It's a, it's a fatigue that is bound up with life itself. I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting. I'm tired of constraining. I'm tired of laboring. Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. And so death is even pictured in this metaphorical way as sleeping. Right? We fall asleep. It's, we finally rest. Blessed are those who rest in the Lord. Revelation 14 says as much. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. It's a blessing to fall asleep when your life has been characterized by labor. So the, the Sabbath, that crowning day of rest, after six days of labor, is a microcosm for your whole life. Your whole life as a believer is taken up with the labor and the toil. Six long days of this labor as you finally prepare for that day of rest to come. And in that rest, you have the presence of God and the communion of God's people. The Sabbath week is a microcosm of the Christian's life. And no rest is more precious then rest to someone who had long toiled for six days, had broken their back in labor. How much sweeter rest is to that than a sluggard? How sweet rest is to a soldier that has lost casualties, limbs as it were. How sweet is that rest when he survives and he makes it to the end? When he made it into the kingdom, though he had to take off an arm and gouge out an eye, he fought the good fight to the end. And now he enters his rest and his reward. There's no rest so sweet as that. Now, brother and sister, if I could venture to say, if that is meant to be the picture for your life, what would your week look like if you could somehow constrain your week to look like toil and labor for the Lord? Not just the bare minimum to provide, but labor, labor for the Lord so that you could find that rest at the end to be sweeter than anyone else could ever imagine. Well done, good and faithful servant, industrious servant, servant with integrity, with zeal, burning himself out, as it were, for the Lord. How sweet in a week of that kind of labor would the day of rest be to you? How sweet in a life of that kind of labor would that final rest be to you? Soon, soon to faithful warriors comes their rest. You know, you catch a squirrel or any rodent, you make any trap. I see these traps, you know, all the time advertised. And all you need to do is create a sort of ramp. All you need is the easiest access point to the trap. And they'll, they'll find the easiest way, right? It doesn't, though a squirrel can go 
from the horizontal ground to the vertical tree. They're made to do that, they do it very well. If there's a leaning branch at a 45 degree angle, they'll just go to that branch, 10 times out of 10. It's just the easier path. I don't have to go as vertical, I can just go up the branch, and then they hit the snare and they're caught. Why people catch squirrels, I don't, I don't know. I hope that we're not that naive as Christians to think the path of least resistance, the easiest way forward, is the blessed way forward. Did not Jesus warn us to not live by sight, to not be like pilgrim on the progress to see the way that looks like it's a shortcut and it will meet up in the end, and then end up in Doubting Castle with giant despair saying, I'm going to rip you to pieces. I'm going to consume you. There's no escape. And it all began by saying, this is the path of least resistance. Maybe there is a broad and wide path that I can go on. And it won't cost me as much as it costs other believers. And it won't require of me the things that it seems to require all these strange people at GRBC. Maybe I can go down this easy, broad path, get what I want from this world, from myself and my flesh, and then straddle my leg in the kingdom and find myself safe and happy at the end. No, only to faithful warriors comes the rest. Only to those who put to death the deeds of the flesh. Only to those who live by the Spirit. Live unto Christ by the power of the Spirit. Only to them comes the rest. So there's rest for the workman, but there's also rest for the warrior. And if you're not working toward that rest, then most likely you're not at war. And if you're not at war, are you even a believer? Are you even a believer? If there's not some angst, some pressure, some need to take every thought captive, some need to take control and use the power of the Spirit by the risen and resurrected Christ to constrain your life into conformity to His image, if there's not that battle being waged in your life, are you even a believer? What would rest be to you? A lazy man's reward. No, soon, soon to faithful warriors comes the rest. And then uh, I think I'm going to pass by Hebrews 4 and, and close with this. Rest for the weary. Rest for the weary. This is where all roads lead to Rome. A rest for the weary. Of course, the gospel has been presented to us as living water, as living bread. And here we have it as rest. It's another picture of the gospel. The Israelites were meant to understand something of the salvation of God according to the Sabbath. You were in bondage, forced to provide in ways that you couldn't even provide. I freed you and I provide for you. That's a picture of the gospel. And so Jesus, unsurprisingly in Matthew 11, points to himself as the one who can give rest. And this is again a presentation of the gospel. At that time, we read in Matthew eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus answered. Now, what, what time was it in Matthew 11? At that time? That's significant, right? Matthew's saying, pay attention to the context. It's at this time that he says this. So the context matters, right? At that time, Jesus answered and said, and the time is, he's, he's just rebuked all the cities. He's preached woe upon the cities for their unbelief. They don't know who he is. They don't believe him. They will not follow him. And he preaches woe against them. In verse 19, prior to that, this was the charge, the mockery of Jesus. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton, a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So 
They're mocking Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus. Jesus rebukes them, and then it leads to this. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. You've revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. So here you see part of that context, right? They don't know who he is. They don't understand who he is, so they reject him, and he preaches judgment to them. They mock him. And he says, in light of all of that rejection, cities rejecting him, right? The, the scribes and the priests rejecting him, and he says, truly only the Father knows who the Son is. Truly only my Father knows who I am as I walk veiled in their midst. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Isn't that a beautiful exchange? Out of the whole world that is witnessing the incarnate Son of God, only the Father truly knows, truly understands the glory and the power and the majesty of the Son. And out of that entire world, only the Son truly knows the Father. The only access point is the Son. From the Father through the Son to the world, or the world through the Son to the Father. This mutual relationship, this reciprocal knowledge that comes between the Father and Son by the Spirit. And then Jesus says, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So the Son having a desire to reveal the Father, to reveal the Godhead to believers. And then he basically says, this is how he reveals. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. No one knows, knows who I am, why I've came, what I must do. No one even knows the one who sent me, except me, and who I reveal it to, and this is how I reveal it. This is how I know. This is how I gather those who will come, who are meant to come to me. I say to them, are you weary? Do you labor? Come to me and rest. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. So how does Jesus, at least in Matthew 11, preach the gospel to those that he wants to reveal the Godhead to? He reveals it in terms of rest. He says, put off your labor, the slave labor of the Israelites, and come into the freedom and the redemption. Come into the rest that only I can give, that I will give when you come to me. So the gospel is shown forth as this promised rest. Captured by Joseph Hart so well. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, if you go out to the fields to gather, if you try to earn for yourself, you'll never come at all. The gospel as rest. Is that something that we often think about? If we're not thinking about the gospel as rest, no wonder we don't think about the Sabbath as a day to be sanctified. And insofar as we don't sanctify the Sabbath and, and call this Sabbath a delight and make it a genuine day of rest, of restoration, of worship, of sanctification. If we don't make it that day of rest, no wonder that the gospel is not a picture of rest to us, but actually a picture of something we work and we earn. These things are interconnected. 
This beautiful picture in Ezekiel 37, you remember, he's just given the promise of the new covenant. I will put my law in your heart. I will pour out my spirit upon you. Ezekiel 36, this great foretelling of the new covenant that we have in Christ. And then 37 is almost the illustration of that very thing. Here's what this new covenant will accomplish. Here's what it will do like in an illustration. Uh, We have the valley of dry bones. Can these bones live? You know, this army, and they're all emaciated and decomposed, dry bones in this valley, can they live? You know, Lord. We have the the ruach, the spirit, the breath of God blowing upon them, and they clamber together and are resurrected. And this is what is said, verse 11, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They have said, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we're cut off. But prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, my people... I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them, right? When I bring new life out of death, when you had been dead in trespass and sin, and I pour my spirit upon you and give you new life, and you break forth from your grave, and and your, your bondage, your chains break forth. And he says this, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live. And I will... Settle you in your land. Settle you. The word settle there, it's a fine translation, but it's, it's the same word. It's the root for rest. I will give you rest in the land. I will rest you in the land. So here's this picture of the gospel. It's all contained around this picture of rest, right? The result of God resurrecting his people through a new birth pouring His Spirit upon them, is that they live and they're given rest unto the land. They're given rest. That's a picture of the Gospel. The Lord forms the body of His people, and then in restoring them, He gives them rest in a land. And we're right back to Genesis. This is Adam forming the body, being put in the land, given rest. Noah, we had it in Genesis 5. I think we read right past it. Noah's name, that's where we get the word rest from, Nuach. Heading back to Genesis 5, you have Noah's name given in this way. This one will comfort us. This one will give us rest. Concerning our work and the toil of our hands, because of the ground the Lord has cursed. You see again these images from Genesis to Exodus on to Ezekiel and beyond. This picture of rest, it's a gospel picture. Noah comes as the sort of next Adam the next chance for humanity after this devastating judgment over the face of the earth. And Lamech gives a sort of prophetic name, as we've seen throughout Genesis, and these prophetic names. This one will give us rest. This one will give us rest. Give us rest in what way? Concerning our toil, concerning our labor, concerning the curse of the ground. It's the very things we saw in Genesis 2, in Genesis 3 last week. Right? The curse on the ground that makes us have to labor and toil. And Jesus says, no, I'm the bread. And now Jesus says, no, I'm the rest. Jesus is the greater Noah yet to come. He's the one who gives them rest. Comfort, comfort ye my people. Same, same verbal root, uh, root, root of a noun. Comfort, comfort my people. Rest, rest my people. Speak rest to Jerusalem. Cry out to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. The Lord will, Isaiah 51, the Lord will rest Zion. 
He will rest all of her waste places. He'll give, as it were, a Sabbath to the wilderness so that it can recover. Desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness found in it, thanksgiving. Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed? You see, Genesis is now Exodus. The great global flood of Genesis 5 is now the Red Sea of Exodus. So you have this glorious picture, and what's the result of this? Just like Noah, rest. Just like in Exodus, God gives rest. It's not easy for us to walk by faith among thorns and thistles. It's not easy for us to go down the narrow path and to try to gather faithfully, labor, toil, fight, run the race as to win. It's not easy to live and resist ungodliness and worldly lust. It's not easy to find God's favor in what He takes as much as what He gives. So what a glorious picture of the gospel we have in rest. It's tiresome. It's painful. It's wearying. It's numbing. We're tired. And we're reminded that the gospel is rest. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is the one greater than Noah who promises to give us rest. Are you weary? I will give you rest. That rest arrives fully in the person and work of the Savior. Come all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says to Moses in Exodus 33, my presence goes with you, I will give you rest. So the Sabbath is the chief way we show forth, we display, we take into ourselves the rest that is proclaimed to us, promised to us in the Gospel. The Sabbath is for us a way we trust in the Lord, a way we delight in the Lord, a way we commit ourselves to the Lord, a way we rest in the Lord, and that rest is also an anticipation. The rest becomes waiting. So we trust, we delight, we commit, we rest, we wait. Now all of that, I'm I'm getting to the end here, all that is held together for us in Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is this beautiful picture, I think, of one of the ways... The gospel, the presentation of the Sabbath, shows us what it means for us to sanctify the Sabbath. This rest that actually characterizes our life. It causes us to trust and delight and commit and rest and wait in hope. Psalm 37, beginning in verse 3, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, feed on His faithfulness. What What a picture. Right out of Exodus 16. Rest, eat, look at what I've provided. I'm good. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. When the Lord is the desire of your heart, your heart will be delighted in the Lord. Sanctify the Sabbath. It's a way you not only trust, but you learn how to delight in His goodness. You know more of what He's done, more of how He is. And that leads you to what? Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. He'll bring it to pass. He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. And wait patiently for Him. Don't look around you and become restless like everyone else. Don't be a Mary and start to think, maybe I should be more like Martha. No. Don't fret because of Him who prospers in His way. Because of a man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Right? Anger and wrath would make it quite hard to rest on the Sabbath, wouldn't it? We're not told who these Israelites were that went on the seventh day to gather in in defiance against God. But my guess is they were angry, bitter men. 
complaining, murmuring, grumbling, all the things we've seen characterize the corporate life of Israel up to this point. They're just frustrated. Moses doesn't even know what he's doing. If I was in charge, we would have already been at the border of Canaan. This is, you know what? I'm just going out there. You guys come in, you know, this wrath, this anger, this clamor. It's the opposite of resting in the Lord and waiting patiently for him. It, what, it's what robs trust, what robs delight, what robs commitment. Rather than commitment to the Lord and his people, you end up buffering and pushing against the Lord and his people. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, and don't fret. It only causes harm. What would an Israelite gain from worrying and not getting sleep the whole night that the food was going to spoil? What would it gain? Trusting in the Lord. Evildoers will be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they will inherit the earth. We already have that shadow of the beatitude in there. Do you notice this last little piece here? Rest in the Lord, right? Trusting, delighting, committing, resting, and waiting. And here those two things are put together. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for Him. You cannot rest if you are impatient. Impatience is the oil to the water of rest. You cannot rest if you're impatient. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. You have to wait patiently. If you're resting, you're not laboring. You're not toil. You're resting in Him. You're trusting in Him. You're depending on Him. You're living by His promise. You're walking by faith, not by sight. You're resting in the Lord, waiting patiently for Him. You notice the rest is waiting. And so... For all of the other things that this day ought to mean and can mean and will mean for us as we grow, it's not a day that ever fully satisfies. We get two omers, we're content, it gets us through to the next market day, but we're waiting for that wedding feast. We're waiting for the warrior's rest. We're waiting for the victory rest. And so this rest that causes us to wait patiently, It's a rest rest that builds anticipation. There there yet remains a rest for the people of God. Let me close with these words from Philip Doddridge, a beautiful hymn. He captures this so well. And ask yourself if this day, if today, this day is having this kind of anticipating effect. Is this day, this time, causing you to long for what Doddridge is describing? Thine earthly Sabbath, Lord, we love. That's the first thing. Do you even love this day? Do you love it? Are you just like an Israelite? You're waiting to get back in the fields. Monday can't come quick enough. You say, oh, I hate Monday, but looking at your life, you love Monday. It's Sunday that you don't like. (laughs) You love Monday. Thine earthly Sabbath, Lord, we love, but... There's a nobler rest above. Thy servants to that rest aspire with ardent hope, strong desire. No more fatigue, no more distress, no sin, no death shall reach that place. No groans mingle with the songs that dwell upon immortal tongues, right? We, we worship on this day of rest with some groaning in our voices. When we worship on that final rest, there's no groaning, no fatigue, no sorrow. No rude alarms of raging foes. No cares to break our long repose. No midnight shade. No clouded sun. 
but sacred, high, eternal moon. O long-expected day, begin. Is there even something remotely similar about this day that would cause you to long for that greater day yet to come? Is there any aspect of your preparation or your participation in this day that would cause you to say, oh, long-expected day, begin. Oh, I can't wait for this to be perfected, for this to be consummated. If you don't love the earthly Sabbath now, how could you possibly love that heavenly Sabbath yet to come? If you don't love the rest that God has given you now, how could you love the rest that remains for the people of God? If you don't love this, I've got bad news for you. If you love Mondays more than this, if you love toil more than rest, I've got bad news for you. Oh, long-expected day begin. Dawn on these realms of woe and sin. Fain would we leave this weary road, sleep in death, to rest with God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this day You've given us, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, I have not sanctified this day as I ought. And I forfeited the blessings of it. I forfeited the growth and the grace I would have received from it. Help us, Lord, as a church to understand why you've given, not exacted, not burdened, but given this day of rest. Out of your goodness, out of this desire to display your gospel, May we live up to that great picture of resting in you, trusting in you, being satisfied by you in a way that we're longing for the greater rest yet to come. Bless us and be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.